and uh, appreciate those of you hearty souls uh, who have shown up and you can tell your grandkids you walked to work in snow that was waist deep uphill both ways. And it'll at least be partially true after today. So thank you for coming. This hearing is very timely given a number of international conferences on Lebanon and upcoming elections in Lebanon in May. Uh, Lebanon has been a regional center for finance and trade for centuries and has always been an important nation in the Middle East. But it also sits in a very rough neighborhood today, with many outside forces attempting to upset the balance among its uh, sectarian political forces. Today, Lebanon forces, uh, faces enormous challenges. Security is first among those, these issues. Since 2006, the United States has pr provided roughly $1.7 billion to Lebanese armed forces and internal security forces. The recent conference in Rome provided additional commitments of more than $500 million for security assistance to Lebanon. Recently, the Lebanese Prime Minister announced that the Lebanese Armed Forces will increase their presence along the border with Israel. This decision is welcome as long as the LAF plays a role in decreasing the stockpiles of missiles and other weapons that Hezbollah has been stockpiling and installing along the border. But I fear Hezbollah's behavior in the disputed areas could lead to a new war between Israel and Hezbollah. The economy remains another priority for Lebanon's future. With an alien infrastructure, the country has lacked the tools necessary to achieve economic growth. Added to this is a massive refugee crisis. In a country of more than four million people, Lebanon has been ill-equipped to absorb over one million Syrian refugees in addition to a substantial Palestinian refugee community. Lebanon desperately needs to update its infrastructure if it hopes to achieve economic growth, but it also needs to stabilize its debt and implement reforms in key areas such as the electricity sector and tackling corruption. The Paris Conference next month will be an important indicator of how much support exists for Lebanon. Finally, a new election law is reshaping how to form electoral alliances and sparking new coalitions. With almost 1,000 candidates for 128 seats in Parliament, the May 6th elections will test whether this new law will help move the country forward or if old alliances will dominate the political landscape. Political stability will be important to reach consensus on many of the domestic issues facing the country. Despite all of these issues, Lebanon is caught between many actors in the region and have, uh, that have a substantial impact on Lebanon's future. Over the last several years, inaction and poor decisions regarding Syria have had dangerous consequences. Hezbollah, Iran, and other enemies have used this crisis to expand their reach. I'm especially worried that we do not recognize the scale and regional reach of Hezbollah. Its strength inside Lebanon has grown, but it has also sent fighters to Syria, trainers to Iraq, and is supporting rebels in Yemen. While Hezbollah may be a power unto itself politically in Lebanon, it also serves as an emissary and interpreter uh, for Iran throughout the Arab world, rallying militias and other fighters to destabilize countries and sow chaos. The United States and indeed the world has an important role in helping Lebanon maintain its independence. We need to have a comprehensive strategy to empower the Lebanese government, limit the influence of Iran and Hezbollah, and improve security for Israel. I hope this hearing will help us understand how we can best support this goal. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And I want to thank the chairman um, for holding this hearing. In foreign relations, we spend an awful lot of time on this part of the world, but we don't spend a lot of time on Lebanon. And I think both of us are concerned about a number of items in the country, broader issues, and it's very, very good to have the hearing. We have two wonderful witnesses today. The um, Prime Minister Hariri's brief resignation from Saudi Arabia was so unusual a number of months back, and it led to calls into our office from sort of all sides raising the question about what was going on in Lebanon. Um, that temporary problem seems to have abated, but as the chairman indicated, all kinds of issues remain. The growing strength of Hezbollah, the, the elections in May, the challenges of Hezbollah's um, growing armaments in the south uh, to Israeli security, and the massive uh, refugee problem that the chairman discussed all create significant issues. This has been um, a relationship, the U.S.-Lebanon relationship has had some strengths, especially the cooperation uh, 
of the United States with the Lebanese Armed Forces. Uh, I visited, I saw the work that we do together uh, in traditional and special forces. The LAF may be one of the institutions in the country that does the best job of integrating folks from different parts of this challenging sectarian situation. Um, and while Hezbollah continues to grow, the announcement about uh, more LAF presence near the Board of Israel is positive. LAF's also played an important role for us in helping fight terrorism in Lebanon. Those are all the positives. But the concerns are those that the chairman outlined. Um, the upcoming elections, the Paris conference, um, and the timing of the work that we're doing on the Armed Services Committee with respect to the National Defense Authorizing Act, which always includes this component of partnerships, is very important. I do know that General Votel, the CENTCOM, uh, regional commander, as well as uh, Secretary Mattis are strong supporters of the U.S. Uh, LAF military relationship. Uh, and I think that's an important thing that we should try to make stronger. But this is a hearing where we can learn, you know, what's going well, but what we need to change, what we need to adjust. These are witnesses who are deeply skilled and have some differences of opinion. That's actually helpful to us as we grapple with this. So, Mr. Chair, thanks, and I'm glad we're able to do this today. Thank you so much. <clears throat> it is an important subject, as you've indicated. We're joined uh, today by two witnesses with strong resumes and experience dealing with the Middle East. Our first witness is Elliot Abrams, who is currently the Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, he served as Special Assistant to President George W. Bush and Senior Director of the National Security Council for Democracy, uh, Human Rights, and International Organizations, as well as Senior Director of the National Security Council for Near East and North African Affairs. Finally, ending his tenure as Deputy National Security Advisor, where he supervised U.S. policy in the Middle East for the White House. Our second witness is Rob Malley, who currently serves as the President and CEO of the International Crisis Group. Prior to the, his current position, he served as Special Assistant to President Obama, heading the President's counter-ISIL campaign, as well as coordinating White House policy for the Middle East, North Africa, and the Gulf region. In addition, he served as Special Assistant to President Clinton for Arab-Israeli Affairs and Director for Near East and South Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. We certainly have uh, uh, diverse people here today, which I think will help us as we uh, struggle with the questions. Gentlemen, we uh, look forward to your testimony on this important topic. Mr. Abrams, we will start with you. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for inviting me here uh, today. Uh, and I should, I guess, uh, say I've spent the day giving people civics lessons, because people say, you can't have a hearing. The government's closed. And then I've had to explain, no, no, that's the executive branch. See the the legislative branch is separate. They make, it's been interesting. <laughs> you know, I've had the same challenges I've dealt with some of our European friends to explain <laughs> to them about the branches of government. They, uh, they, they get lost sometimes and think we only have a single branch of government and it isn't the first branch, I might add. Thank you. Um, I'd like to submit my full testimony for the record and an article I wrote a few days ago about the need to prepare now for getting Americans out of harm's way if there is another war in Lebanon. Um, since about 2008, Lebanon's been in the grip of Hezbollah, which is a terrorist organization backed and largely controlled by Iran. I think U.S. policy largely fails to acknowledge that fact. We consider to treat Lebanon as if it were a friendly, sovereign, independent country whose government can actually set its foreign and defense policy, but that's an illusion. That Lebanon no longer exists. Let me talk about politics and then the army. In May 2008, Hezbollah ended a government crisis over its own powers by using its weapons to seize control of Beirut streets and effectively of the entire state. New York Times back then quoted one expert on Hezbollah concluding this is effectively a coup. It's been about a decade since and Hezbollah's power has grown and so has its domination of Lebanon. During the war in Syria for about the last six years, Hezbollah has served as Iran's foreign legion and sent thousands of Lebanese Shia across the border to fight. Throughout 2017, Israeli officials have been warning that the distinction between Hezbollah and Lebanon can no longer be maintained. Hezbollah is quite simply running the country. Yes, it leaves administrative matters to the government, paying salaries, paving streets, collecting garbage, but there's no important decision taken without Hezbollah's agreement. Tony Badrani, research fellow here at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, summed up the current situation, quote, in terms of the actual balance of power, 
the actual power on the ground, regardless of the politics, the cabinets, regardless of the parliamentary majorities, it's Hezbollah. Lebanon's constitution provides for a division of power by sect, uh, but today there's really no balance of power. Hezbollah prevented the selection of a president for two years until it could force the acceptance of the Christian closest to it, uh, Michel Aoun. Parliamentary elections are coming, May 6th, and there's a good chance they will help Hezbollah consolidate power. Um, the issues that should be under debate, how to recover Lebanon's sovereignty and prevent Hezbollah from involving Lebanon in foreign wars uh, can hardly be mentioned. Um, let me just turn to the LAF in the time left. Um, I would argue that our assistance to the LAF is based on the roles it's supposed to play under Security Council resolutions 1559 and 1701. If the LAF were implementing those resolutions, it would be intercepting Hezbollah weapon shipments coming from Iran via Syria. It would be securing Lebanon's borders. It would be preventing Hezbollah from parading its military equipment and maintaining fixed bases. It would be preventing Hezbollah from placing military equipment in schools and hospitals. But in real life, the LAF does none of those. If it were doing those things, it would be worth the $1.7 billion that the chairman mentioned. You know, the, Lebanon is the fifth largest recipient of FMF. Uh, but it isn't doing those things. Um, on March 15th, the State Department spokesman at the conference in Rome on Lebanon said that uh, we would renew our support because the aid we provide is, quote, enabling the Lebanese government to assert its authority throughout all of Lebanese territory, close quote. But that's a fantasy. It's not happening. In fact, the relationship between the LAF and Hezbollah appears to be growing closer as time passes. I would argue that our military assistance to Lebanon should be made dependent on pushing back on Hezbollah, on regaining Lebanese sovereignty and independence. The price Lebanon pays for Hezbollah should be made far clearer. The advantages Hezbollah gains from its control of Lebanon should be reduced and made uh, far more controversial. Um, so I, I would argue for a reassessment of that, of the, the basis for that military aid, I think, is an assumption that the LAF is pushing back against Hezbollah and protecting Lebanon in ways that are simply contrary to fact. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Abrams. Mr. Malley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Senator Kane, other members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting me today to talk about an important country that, as you say, is too often overlooked. Um, Lebanon is an exceptional country because it's both a microcosm of the region and an exception to it. It's a microcosm because so many things that ail the region from sectarian polarization to refugee flows to the role of Sunni jihadism, to the role of Iran, and to the role of a non-state actor and the weakness of a state. All of that is uh, characteristic of Lebanon. At the same time, it's an exception because of the pluralism, the tolerance, the multi-confessional politics, the fact that it manages, for better or for worse, to have relations with the US, with Iran, with Saudi Arabia. All those things make uh, uh, Lebanon stand out in a region that suffers for too, from too little of all of that. And when you think about it, the shocks that Lebanon has and continues to experience from the wars that, have, uh, that, that, it, that has, it has suffered, from the over a million refugees, as you said, Mr. Chairman, about a quarter of its population, the spillover of the Syrian conflict in terms of jihadism, but also sectarianism and Hezbollah's role in that war, most countries wouldn't have been able to survive that, let alone a country as fragile and as polarized as Lebanon. The fact that it held together is because of two things. First, the memories of a very bloody civil war. But second, because it has this awkward and sometimes troubling and, and, uh, and, uh, and often quite troubling and disturbing balance between its relations with Iran and the role that it has allowed and afforded to a non-state actor like Hezbollah. It's that balancing which gives Hezbollah, as uh, my good friend Elliot Abrams just said, an outsized role in domestic politics and a veto on foreign policy. It's that balance that has allowed Lebanon to survive against the odds as it is and to be as resilient as it is. But it's that unsavory balance that also raises the question that, as, that this subcommittee is exa examining is that uh, Elliot just uh, spoke about. That balance means, that unsavory balance means that you have a non-state actor that is an ally of Iran, 
that is obviously our enemy, that is uh, dominating local politics. Nothing can be done against their will. Governments can't be formed against their will. A president can't be chosen against their will. And that has hijacked uh, their foreign policy. And that's why there are some, and, and Elliot is among them, who's arguing for a break from traditional US policy, which has been to try to balance Hezbollah's influence by supporting independent or sovereign institutions, in particular the LAF, and trying to prevent uh, recurrence of an Israeli-Hezbollah war. And I think Elliot has made a very strong case about why the policies that we have put in place have not fully achieved the goals that we would have liked to see uh, occur in Lebanon. And so the idea would be, the contrary idea would be, let's diminish Hezbollah and therefore Iran's role by sanctioning, punishing, cutting off aid to institutions like the LAF. Now in a word, as with so many of these theories in the Middle East, it looks very good in practice. In, in theory, in practice, it's wrong-headed and dangerous. I think we've learned from experience that grand theories to try to change and to disturb the equilibrium in a particular country, in this case Lebanon, often has unintended consequences with which we should think about very carefully and prudently before going down that road. In this case, if we were to cut off assistance and, 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 uh, and halt our aid to the LAF, it could jeopardize Lebanon's stability. If we provoked a confrontation between Hezbollah and the LAF, I think we know who would prevail. It could intensify risks of war with Israel. It would weaken those who we want to support, those who count on independent institutions, who count on the LAF. It would give a freer hand to Iran and Hezbollah to dominate the LAF and other institutions. And by creating chaos, it also would help Iran, which has a real ability and has always thrived on chaos in the region, whether it's in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. And this is not just theory. I'm not, I'm not just speculating. Saudi Arabia tried at some point, as you know, to engineer this kind of policy by forcing uh, uh, Prime Minister Hurry to resign in order to force Lebanon to have this choice. Either you get rid of Hezbollah or you get rid of our assistance. You can't get both. Now, I happened to be in Lebanon on the Monday after uh, Prime Minister Hariri uh, was detained in Saudi Arabia. I happened to be in Saudi Arabia last week where I had a long meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I came away from both those meetings, one in November, the other last week, convinced that the Saudi gambit had failed, and only slightly less convinced that the Crown Prince himself realizes that it failed. And it failed because Lebanon is a country where you cannot exclude one constituency like Hezbollah, how much, however much we may not like it. It failed because all of the Lebanese, including the Sunnis who are closest to Hariri, were against this gambit. They told me, as they've told the Saudis, as they told US officials, this is far too dangerous to continue. We need to preserve the stability. So in a few words, what's a better approach? Continue our assistance to, to uh, and donor assistance to Lebanon, ensuring that the LAF and other institutions in particular can be strengthened as a counterweight for Hezbollah. When we help the LAF, make sure that we, that we tell them clearly that there are certain lines that they can't cross in terms of cooperation with the LAF. Use that, that leverage to, to get the institutions to work in the right direction. Avoid escalation uh, between Hezbollah and Israel. And there's some, uh, I don't have time here, but we have some uh, recommendations in the International Crisis Group report on this. And then a last point, which may be beyond the remit of this hearing, but I think it is relevant, which is to try to de-escalate tensions in the region and our policies towards Iran, our policies on the Iran nuclear deal, our policy towards Saudi Arabia, which we should support but not enable, all those, unfortunately, in, in, my, in our opinion, are going uh, in the wrong direction. So this is not a grand agenda. It's not as inspirational or transformative as some may like. It's more of the status quo, maintaining our support, maintaining that policy. But I think Lebanon is too weak, too vulnerable, too susceptible to destabilization, to afford grand aspirations. It's not a country where grand dreams are made. It's a country which we have learned, Israel has learned, the French have learned. It's a country where grand, grand dreams uh, uh, crash. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Um, you've uh, both raised some questions that I think we ought to explore a little bit, and that is, uh, Mr. Abrams, you, you noted, uh, as I did in my opening statement, that there are elections May, what is it, 6th or May 12th? And uh, there's a thousand people running, and you, your suggestion was that perhaps Hezbollah will, will make gains uh, in those elections. What, what are your thoughts? I want to hear both of your thoughts on this. Um, do, do you think the people of Lebanon have a clear vision of the effects of electing a terrorist 
a designated terrorist organization to be the government of the country. We have a model there with, uh, in, obviously, in Gaza. And uh, in my mind, I see parallels there. Uh, that uh, if indeed uh, the electorate makes that choice, and of course they can make a choice that they want to make, some bad things are going to happen. Your thoughts, please. <clears throat> I think they certainly recognize uh, the nature of the coalition government they've had, of which today, of which Hezbollah is a part. And certainly everybody in Lebanon recognizes that, that Hezbollah has let's call it extra constitutional powers, just by virtue of the fact that it, it has the guns. But I think they don't have a sense that, uh, of the price they're paying, because we don't set a price. I was struck in Rob's testimony that he said, you know, in a sense, another version of what I said, that is, he said, we need to set limits. And I basically said, unless there are limits, we shouldn't give them any money. I think we're saying in that sense the same thing. We, we ought to be saying to the LAF and to the more generally people of Lebanon, Certain things are not permissible, and they will cause us to walk away. And we have actually not done that. I mean, in the speech that Secretary Tillerson made in Beirut, he just applauded everything was just wonderful in Lebanon. There was no sense that, that yes, he attacked Hezbollah, but he did not say, nor did we say at the Rome conference, the following things are unacceptable to us, and they're going to have to change. So unless we say that, I think Lebanese will not get that message. Mr. Powell, you may have a different view. Well, first of all, I think the elections are not going to change much uh, on the political equilibrium in the country. This is a finely balanced. They have a new electoral law, but in, I think we're going to see a replica of what we see today. It's going to be a national unity government. Those are the only ones that work. Lebanon experienced in the past an attempt to exclude one party or the other. It doesn't work, and in fact, their, basic, their, 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 their constitution uh, kind of requires that every constituency be, be represented. Hezbollah has a constituency among Shiites. It is by far the most powerful uh, movement among Shia, with Amal, which is its, its ally. So they will have, they will have that support, and, it's, and we won't be able to diminish that support, even if we were to threaten a caliphate. Hezbollah simply is too powerful among its constituents. And it is true, as it says, is Lebanese may not know the price uh, they pay by voting for Hezbollah. I think they would continue, the Shiites will continue to vote for them. They do know the price of trying to confront Hezbollah. For better or for worse, they've experienced in the past. Hezbollah is a stronger party, and the army itself would splinter if there was a confrontation, because many Shia and, and others in the army would would join the, uh, would join Hezbollah. So I think we have to be very realistic about what can be achieved and, and how our threats would play or not on Lebanese uh, theater. My understanding from talking to U.S. officials is that they, we do tell the LAF. Of course, they're doing more. They're cooperating more, or they're working more with, with Hezbollah than, as, than we might like, in some cases because they had to cooperate with them to get rid of ISIS and get rid of Al-Qaeda on the border. They have worked together. But we do set certain lines about how, how much we don't want them uh, to, to cooperate. And the truth is, if we were not there, if we didn't have that leverage, that cooperation and that uh, sort of the, 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 the takeover by Hezbollah of the LAF would, be, would, be, would probably be far more, far more extensive than we're seeing today. So this is not a comfortable situation, but it's the reality of Lebanon today that there is no politics without Hezbollah. There's no equilibrium or balance or stability without Hezbollah. And either we decide that we're gonna leave the Leb Lebanon and the Lebanese to that dominance and to Iran, and we're not gonna play a role, or we're gonna have to try to find a way to, to, to shape it as we go along. Uh, Mr. Abrams, you wanna take a minute to respond? Yeah, I just, I, I think there's a straw man being built here. I did not suggest cutting off Lebanon without assent. I did not suggest breaking relations. I did not suggest that we end our economic assistance. Um, I do think, though, that, you know, that Rob is operating on a theory, which is that if we significantly diminish our military aid, then there'll be more cooperation between the LAF and Hezbollah. You know, we don't give them the whole budget. The budget, we probably give about 10 or 20% of the LAF, ISF budget. So this is operating on a theory. I think we'd be better off saying certain things are just unacceptable. And some of those things are things that they've done, handing bases over from the LAF to Hezbollah, watching them parade, making no, no effort really to push back. Now, maybe they can't push back, but then why are we paying for it? Senator Kane. You know, these are great discussions, so let me just pick up on that, because it is the case that uh, 
Mr. Abrams was not talking about a cut. He's talking about the right limitations. Um, but I would say it's also the case that Mr. Malley isn't just advocating a theory, or at least not just his own theory, because what he's advocating would be what Secretary Tillerson advocates, and also what General Votel and Secretary Mattis advocate. But let me ask you a hard question, Mr. Malley. So if we pursue this direction, the, you know, the, the Malley, Votel, uh, Mattis, Tillerson, um, what's the long game? Um, Hezbollah continues to grow you know, a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger. Um, what, what's, it, what's the path to something better? What's the path to something where Israel can fee, feel more secure with its next door neighbor or, or there is a, a better chance of, uh, you know, a Lebanon that can deal with its internal challenges more successfully? Mr. Malley? It's a great question. I don't think it's going to be resolved by us dealing with Lebanon. This is a big question having to do with Iran's policy in the region, which is why I think the third point that I made, which is we have to we have to push back against Iran. I don't think doing it without diplomacy, without engagement, is going to get us where we want to go. But it's a big problem that you know, administration after administration, the ones that uh, Elliot served in, the ones I served in, haven't been able to tackle, which is what do we do about Iran's role in the region? What do we do about it, the existence of an, of an armed militia like Hezbollah with 100,000 missiles? That's a real problem, but it's not by, I don't think, and I'm not saying that uh, Elliot is suggesting it, it's not by cutting off aid or, or threatening to cut off aid to the left that we're going to address that issue. That's going to that's take a transformation in the region. It may take uh, events beyond, beyond our control that might happen in Iran, that would happen uh, in Lebanon. How about there's legislation pending before the committee on additional Hezbollah-related sanctions? So say we leave the LAF funding and other uh, economic support uh, steady to show that a continued partnership. What about the viability of additional sanctions? I think there's a Rubio-Shaheen bill that has been pending. So I'm not familiar with the details of, mm -hmm. of that bill. I've seen other bills in, mm -hmm. in the past. I think one question is, is it going to, I think we have sanctioned Hezbollah. Right. Again, different administrations have, including the ones in which I served. Um, the question is, are we also affecting Lebanon's economy? And we have to be careful that we don't, we don't uh, affect ordinary Lebanese. And Lebanese, and I'm sure you know it because you get those phone calls, Sunni, Christian, and Shia, who say, be mm -hmm. careful, our banking sector right. is, 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 is teetering. And so we have to just be careful about that. But I will say, not, you know, this is not a position against sanctions. We have to be realistic about what it's going to achieve. Sanctions are not going to diminish Hezbollah's power. Mm -hmm. Their power does not depend on whether uh, the U.S. is providing or others are providing forms of assistance. There may be an, an issue. Why do we want, as Elit says, well, are we supporting them? Uh, why should we be supporting Lebanon if it is giving this kind of cover to, to Hezbollah? But again, that's not going to resolve the very big question you ask, which is a question we've been uh, trying to grapple with for a long time but not resolving. Which here, here the, a big question that I grapple with, and when I go to Lebanon or elsewhere, when I go to southern Turkey or, or Iraq or Jordan, one of the questions I hear, but especially in Lebanon, is we feel like we're just you know, being trampled on by an Iranian-Saudi proxy war. Uh, people really feel like they're under the thumb of a big proxy war. And they, 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 you know, the people I talk to are very upset about Iranian influence, but they're also upset about Saudi influence. The reaction to this forced you know, resignation, uh, I, I know that uh, Prime Minister Hariri's popularity has really been boosted in the aftermath of this because there was a strong reaction in Lebanon against you know, a foreign government trying to decide who the, the PM should be. H how do you think, Prime, either of you, how, how can or likely will the Prime Minister use that boost to try to uh, make improvements? Or is that something that's just temporary that's, that's going to fade and doesn't give him any really increased uh, ability to make improvements? <coughs> Well, that would be my uh, judgment about it. I don't think you'll see much of a change. I think <clears throat> uh, he did have a boost in popularity, but um, I don't think, even in the Sunni community, he's viewed as a, a kind of strong leader, let's say, that his father was. I don't necessarily disagree. I think he did get a boost. I think that boost is probably going to be temporary, as political boosts often are in, 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 in many situations. But I think that the point you made, and again, I happened to be in Lebanon at the time, Sunnis who are very close to Hariri, who are very anti-Hezbollah, who are very pro-American, were saying, how could Saudi Arabia do this? It is making us look bad. It's making us look like puppets. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, uh, with, with pressure from here and from Fr the French and others, uh, the, 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 the Crown Prince reversed that decision, which mm -hmm. I think was wise, uh, because it was, it was backfiring. All right, I'll stop right there, let others ask. Senator Young. 
Well, thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. You've had an interesting back and forth, and it's already been instructive for me. Um, there seems to be uh, some common agreement that uh, our assistance to the LAF, and more generally to Lebanon, uh, should be uh, conditional uh, upon certain good behavior. Uh, there, there perhaps is disagreement about the tactics we employ, but I think foundationally you've both uh, agreed that, yeah, actually you've explicitly stated that was the case. So my question is, is, um, is it feasible for, say, our State Department to establish uh, achievable, verifiable conditions to lay those out, to make those uh, very clear uh, to the Lebanese, and um, and if so, what would you regard as some of those the the most important benchmarks uh, or conditions that need to be achieved? So, as you say, I think you know neither one of us would would want to give carte blanche and say they can do whatever they want. If the, tomorrow the the LAF were completely under the control of Hezbollah, I don't th I think it would be hard to argue for continued assistance. I think where we would differ is I think where we are today and where the State Department and, the, and uh, General Votel and, and, and Secretary Mattis are is that where we are today, that's a right balance. I don't know that we want to be as explicit. I think it's the kind of thing, as I understand it, and from my experience, that we, we work directly with the LAF and we say there's some things in terms of the degree of coordination uh, and cooperation with Hezbollah that would cross the line. It's more we know it when we see it rather than red lines, which then uh, may may lead Hezbollah to try to, 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 uh, to cross them. So I think that there, there are steps about how closely the, the, the LAF and Hezbollah coordinate, how much uh, Hezbollah has direct in, direction in terms of the decisions that the LAF is making. But I, I, I think, again, where we differ is that today I don't think that we should be at a point where we, where we say that if the status quo were to continue, then Lebanon uh, should, should see uh, implications in terms of the degree of our assistance. So, Mr. Abrams, uh, do you have different thoughts about? Uh, yeah, I would say we should be explicit uh, uh, about uh, what constitutes good behavior, and then secondarily, uh, would it be feasible uh, to borrow actually a construct uh, that uh, uh, Senator Kane put forward in a different setting um, to perhaps put some money in escrow until uh, the Lebanese come into good behavior? This I think is a that's different a different context. I'll yeah, <clears throat> I think it's a very interesting idea because I think there are some things. I don't mean that we should shout them from the rooftops. We can say them privately to the LAF. They'll become known to Hezbollah within about 10 minutes. Um, we don't want to see any visible cooperation between those two, and you do see visible cooperation. Um, that's just uh, one example. I'd like to take a look at the question of promotions within the LAF. Uh, where I believe Hezbollah has pretty much a veto power, which is really, really ought to be unacceptable to us. So I think there are things that we could talk about to the LAF in private uh, that we would set as uh, more or less red lines, or at least as things that we're going to consider at the top of the list if we're going to release the escrow fund, for example. Let me uh, pivot to uh, Hezbollah and his threat to Israel. Uh, Mr. Abrams, how has Hezbollah's rocket and missile arsenal changed since the 2006 war in terms of size of the arsenal and the range of the missiles? To generally believe that the arsenal is something like five or six times as large, from 10 to 20,000 to 100 to 150,000 missiles. Uh, and in 2006, they were really dumb bombs. Uh, now Hezbollah has at least a few thousand uh, targetable rockets that can go after <coughs> a power plant, a desalination plant, the IDF headquarters. This is why Israel is spending so much effort trying to prevent Iran from getting more of those uh, to Hezbollah or creating a precision weapons factory in Syria or Lebanon. So the, the level of danger has risen considerably. I can only imagine how Americans would feel if, if we were under a similar situation where our most populous cities uh, were under threat of uh, continuous uh, threat, uh, as are the Israelis. What might we do as a government uh, that we aren't doing um, to assist the Israelis, uh, our strongest ally in the region, dealing with this threat? I think you're doing it, actually. Okay. I mean, one thing is to make sure that we preposition munitions in Israel so that you don't have to have the kind of airlift we need in 1973. Um, another is to join with the Israelis in building the various forms of rocket and missile defense 
that have been very useful to them already and can be very useful uh, to us as well. And Congress has been really quite generous in, in uh, financing that. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Malley, briefly, do you agree with uh, Mr. Abrams' assessment of the uh, situation regarding the rockets in uh, Lebanon? I think that's an uncontroversial. Uh, I mean, I think people generally agree with that that's the size that has built. I think the real question is, what's the risk of war? The International Crisis Group has the ability to talk to all parties. I think our assessment, having spoken to leadership in Israel and, in, and among Hezbollah, is that neither side wants a war right now, precisely because of this, this balance of deterrence, what Hezbollah calls balance of terror, that Hezbollah knows it would be decimated if it provoked Israel. But Israel also knows that if it had to face 100,000 rockets pouring on its cities, that would be very difficult. I think they would do it if they felt they had to, but neither side right now is itching for a fight. Thank you, Mr. Malley. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I think it would be a mistake if we left this hearing viewing Lebanon through the prism of a problem child. Uh, it has challenges. It has an alliance and connection to Hezbollah and Iran uh, that causes difficulties for us. Um, but we would wish for uh, the existence of a Lebanon-like political arrangement uh, on many of its neighbors. This is a multi-ethnic, pluralistic coalition government. It is a nation that is by and large stable, free from military civil conflict. And it is also, by the way, hosting 1.5 million Syrian refugees, which equals one quarter of the country's population. Without Lebanon's uh, agreement to host those refugees, um, our military operations in Syria would be in a very different position today. And so I think this is a very useful conversation about how we try to prompt Lebanon uh, to move in a different direction. Uh, direction with respect to its relationship with Hezbollah. Um, but I think it's important to celebrate the successes of a country that should have collapsed by now, given all of the challenges that it, that it, that it confronts, and could be a model for other nations with respect to how it has been able to weave together um, people of different faiths and, and different ethnic backgrounds. Um, and, and with that in mind, um, I wanted to ask you, Mr. Malley, to maybe expand on your third point. You said, listen, the, the, the future of Lebanon is really much more about this broader contest. Um, and what the Saudis did is really extraordinary. Um, it may have backfired and they may have pulled back, thanks in part to uh, some intervention from the United States and others, but it begs the question what their next gambit may be um, and uh, how the uh, new, as, the new uh, positioning by this administration uh, as a relatively unconditional supporter of the Saudis' regional plays um, will affect um, the decision they make a year from now or two years from now. Um, should we worry um, about um, MBS emboldened position and his next attempt uh, to try to force the hands of the Lebanese. Is this it? Are they just back in their corner? Or are we perhaps, should we be thinking about getting ready for another potentially destabilizing effort um, inside Lebanon? Well, first of all, thank you, Senator Murphy, for what you said at the beginning, which is exactly my view I said at the beginning of my testimony. There's so much that Lebanon uh, is a, an exception to the rest of the region and that we need to support the pluralistic, uh, tolerant, multi-confessional. Also, as you say, Lebanon has too often been the arena for the struggles of other. Whether it's regional neighbors, whether it's others, it has been the, uh, the victim of power politics by regional and international actors, mm -hmm. and they've always paid a very heavy price. Um, and I think we now can, this is one of the longest stretches of time where Lebanon has not been the victim of those conflicts if you, uh, since, the, since the second Israeli Hezbollah war in 2006. And, and that's, uh, that is, again, something to be not just celebrated, but to su be supported. I spoke earlier about uh, Saudi Arabia's gambit. Um, I believe it backfired. I also said I was in Saudi Arabia last week where I met with, uh, with uh, the crown prince. My sense, but this is just my words, not his, I think that he realizes that the gambit backfired. And they have, they've now reverted to a more pragmatic approach of basically status quo ante of work, trying to support those institutions in Lebanon that, uh, that are uh, sovereign and independent. Um, how long that would last, he still, I think, still believes deep down, sort of as Elliot would say, that there's something wrong with this picture. Why are we supporting a country in which Hezbollah is a, not just a, a, a partner, but the, the, the dominant partner? And that brings me to the issue of U.S. policy. I have nothing against supporting Saudi Arabia. I do think there's a problem when we enable them and enable their worst instincts. And I think that's been a trend in Yemen, 
It's been a trend in their, at the beginning of this Lebanese adventure. It's been a trend in their conflict, the dispute with Qatar. I think support has to come with good advice and support has to come with trying to channel Saudi, you know, renewed uh, uh, vision for the region, channel it in the right direction. And I hope, and in this case, as, as you know well, after a first supportive uh, expression of support by, by the administration for what, was, what had gone on between Saudi Arabia and Lebanon, there was then a strong pushback by Assistant Secretary Satterfield, or Acting Assistant Secretary Satterfield. I think that needs to continue. We need to tell the Crown Prince, here's something that you ought not. Let me try to sneak in a question to you, uh, Mr. Abrams. You can take a <coughs> stick approach with the LAF and with the Lebanese government, and you can take a carrot approach. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about, we've got a proposed budget that you know, won't, won't see the light of day here from the Trump administration that proposes you know, wiping out 56% of the bilateral aid that we give to Lebanon. Um, but um, what about a concerted effort to try to reach out to the Shia populations in uh, Lebanon to convince them that uh, Iran is not, only, is not their only friend, is not their only protectorate, that they have other places to turn. The Iranians have done this effectively throughout the region in Bahrain. They reached out and convinced the Shia populations that the only way that they could gain protection as a minority uh, population was to turn to Iran. Um, what, what, about you, what about using additional assistance rather than just the threat of cutting off assistance, especially with respect to the Shia population to try to give them a choice? Well, I would like to see us make <clears throat> an effort to get more uh, Shia away from Hezbollah. And I think it's very hard to measure what percentage of the Shia population actually uh, doesn't support Hezbollah. It's not zero. Um, but I don't know if we're really equipped to do it. I don't know if we really know how to do that. I'd like to see us do it in Bahrain as well, which is a, another hearing. But um, I, I do think that, that um, we should be thinking about ways to get the Shia population to see the problem more clearly and to begin to turn away from Hezbollah. The problem you run into there is Hezbollah's power, which does not primarily come from speeches. It comes from primarily from the fact uh, that they have the guns. Senator Booker. Thank you so much. Um, Mr. Malley, just real quick, the, the instability in southern Lebanon, the, the incredible influx of refugees, uh, the poverty amongst uh, the populations there, to me it creates an environment where radicalism um, uh, much more easily takes root. And I'm wondering, in that context, uh, with all the levers that the United States has, how important is, uh, you know, USAID's education efforts go, uh, going on there, trying to service uh, children? Um, could you just sort of let, help me understand in terms of, as we think about all these levers that we have, the importance of uh, uh, doing direct support uh, to poor populations, particularly children, education, things like that? Thank you, Senator Booker. I think this, this, this piggybacks on, on the question that uh, Senator Murphy asked, and I think it's absolutely right. We, where, where do we have value added? We have value added in many things, but our soft power, our economy, our, our support for refugees, our support for programs on the ground, which right now in southern Lebanon, I mean, where, where does Hezbollah's strength originally come from? From the fact that they were the vehicle for the empowerment of a community, the Shiites, who felt disempowered and marginalized. Others need to step in. Again, that's what Senator Murphy said. And the broader point here, which relates to Hezbollah and Iran's influence, if there's one lesson I think we could take from the last 15 or more years is that instability, chaos, that's what benefits Iran. That was true in Lebanon, it was true in, it's true in Yemen today, it's true in Syria, it was definitely true in Iraq. Whereas our value, our strength comes from when we could support institutions, when our economic strength comes into play, where our social programs come into play, we should not be promoting instability. Again, I'm not saying that's what uh, uh, my, my friend Elliot is, is advocating, but some of these policies could lead, and what, what uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia had tried at one point, could lead to instability, and that instability not only helps radicalism, it also supports the efforts of, of a country like Iran that knows how to prosper on chaos. Uh, you want to comment on that? Uh, Just one brief comment, and that is, I agree with that, but I do think that on the economic side, we have to take a careful look at the Lebanese banking system, which has often been used by Hezbollah. Um, and I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars come into Hezbollah, some from Iran, but many from illegal activities, including narcotics trafficking, primarily in Latin America. Um, and a lot of that goes through the Lebanese banking system. So while I agree that it's fragile, uh, if it's a criminal enterprise, it needs to be investigated and sanctioned by the United States. That's what our laws are there for. So I would, I would not give them a, a pass on that. 
So can I drill down on that a little bit more? Because obviously, uh, I think Shaheen Rubio did a pretty good job with uh, helping us get more at the Lebanese banks uh, to trying to stop uh, Hezbollah, these payments. But what I'm hearing, uh, and my staff is hearing, is that the way that uh, Hezbollah is moving these days is more in bulk cash payments, not through banking systems, using them for weapons transfers. And so are, are, are the banks really the center of what we should be focusing our uh, that tool in our toolbox, the, 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 our efforts at sanctioning, are we, are we in some ways uh, not getting at to the root of the problem of the way that Hezbollah is moving its, its resources? I wouldn't say there is a root. I wouldn't say that the banks are the only way they're doing it, but, um, and I'm not seeing the intel these days, you are, but I don't think that the Lebanese banking system gets a pass on this. Uh, Hezbollah is there and continues to use that banking system. Um, Mr. Mal, you want to comment on that at all? So, I mean, again, I think we have historically sanctioned Lebanese banks. Uh, obviously, Hezbollah will find ways to circumvent that. They will always look for ways. I think we just have to be careful, and when we go after the banks, to make sure that, and, and my understanding is that the Treasury Department is, feels like there's been progress made. That's, again, I don't get the intelligence briefings either. We just have to be careful that we're not drowning the country even as we're trying to, to hit uh, Hezbollah, because this is a fragile country, and, and the, the banking sector is pivotal for their economy. I think there's steps we can take. Maybe there's more that we could take, but let's not, uh, let's not go there with a sledgehammer and, uh, and, and wreck up the country in the process. And then just uh, finally, I, I have a worry um, about just the, with the Iranian drone coming over and doing an incursion into Israel with heightened tensions, with the instability that I see in the aftermath of the major conflict in Syria, Iran's influence uh, uh, in Syria. I just have this a growing concern that one of the things we should be looking at, um, uh, put the JCPOA aside, is just a conflict between Israel, a direct conflict between Israel and Iran. Can you let me help me understand how realistic my concerns are and what we should be thinking about in terms of uh, not allowing such a conflict to take place? Well, I think you would get a proxy conflict, in a sense, between Hezbollah backed by Iran and Israel. I think that's the, what we're all worried about. Um, when I travel to Israel, I hear less and less about the Iran nuclear question or about Palestinian questions and more and more about the northern front, Syria and Hezbollah. Um, I think uh, we do need to take a look at the question of Americans in Lebanon. There are something like 15 to 25,000. What happens to them? if such a war breaks out? How do we protect them? How do we evacuate them? Um, but I'm, I'm less worried about a direct conflict than I am about... Proxy fight. Yep. If, if you don't mind, I, um, I, I think it's, a fair, it's certainly a fair concern. Uh, the more likely uh, fight is between Hezbollah and, and Israel, but the region today, I would say, is both more integrated and more polarized than it's ever been. In other words, it's, it's very polarized. We obviously know that the... the, 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 the dispute between Saudi Arabia and Iran, between Israel and Iran, between us and Iran. But it's also very integrated. In other words, what happens in Lebanon will quickly spread to Syria and vice versa. What happens in Yemen could spread to Iraq, could spread to Syria, could spread to Lebanon, could spread to Israel. This is a place where you could light the match one place and the whole region could be ablaze. And it could well be that Iran and Israel will find themselves, as they almost did with the episode of the drone, uh, directly at loggerheads. I think the answer to this, and it goes again to the question that Senator Kane was asking, how do we get to this broader problem of the Middle East? We're going to have to do what we're doing to try to push back, but we have to get engaged in diplomacy. There's going to have to be a new regional architecture for this region. It's not simply going to appear. Our pushback is not going to stop Iranian influence. It's not going to destroy the 100,000 missiles. We're going to have to think of how we get to, to, to real diplomacy, which means carrots and sticks, which means pressure, but also engagement. And we've dropped that second part. Thank you very much. Uh, gentlemen, we, we've got a vote going to go up. Senator Kane and I each uh, will close us out with a question. Hopefully you can have a brief answer because we do have a vote starting. So Senator Kane, you want to go first? Just really quickly, I wanted to ask about the refugee issue. I mean, I, I, what Lebanon has done, given the size of its population with this massive Syrian refugee population, is pretty amazing. As the chair mentioned, there's already a longstanding Palestinian refugee community. So, Mr. Malley, I sort of asked you this question, and I'm going to ask you in your ICG role, sort of if we play down the road the politics in Lebanon, that's one thing, but let's play down the road this, you know, million-plus refugees. I'm not sure they're going back to Syria anytime soon. They impose significant challenges, even as Lebanon has been pretty welcoming of them. What, what do we need to do as an international community, and how do you see the long-term presence of this sizable number of Syrian refugees as 
you know, shaping the future in Lebanon. As you say, this is between 1 and 1.5 million. It's a quarter of the population. Yeah. It's almost staggering the numbers. So very quickly, we need to provide support for the refugees. We also need to be very aware of the fact that it's creating sectarian tensions within Lebanon. And, that, and so we have mm -hmm. to be very supportive uh, and have social programs, employment programs to make sure the refugees don't become a drain. And my last point, yes, return in Syria uh, it may be a long-term uh, aspiration. We have to make sure that it's done voluntarily. There's often a tendency in Lebanon to think that they, they should uh, kick them out because of the, the, the imbalance they're, they're creating in, on the sectarian spectrum. I think we have to be clear to the Lebanese that's, that's uh, an unacceptable. Thank you. Uh, let me close with this. Um, UN Security Council Resolution 1701 and 2373 were pretty clear, not pretty clear, very clear, that, uh, that the UN force in Lebanon was to assist the Lebanese government in creating an area free of any armed personnel, assets, and weapons other than those of the government of Lebanon uh, or, and or those of UNIFIL, obviously, to the elimination of uh, Hezbollah weapons. Uh, how, how do you assess, I, I hear a lot of criticism from the Israelis about, uh, about that. How, how do each of you, as briefly as you can, tell me how successful that's been and whether you agree that, that it's, it's not working very well? <clears throat> well, I think it clearly has not worked. Uh, the goal has been to have Lebanese government sovereignty over the full territory, no militias, no terrorist groups, uh, and since the passage of those resolutions, I would say Hezbollah is more powerful. Mm -hmm. um, also, at the end of the 2006 war, we, the United States, tried very hard to, to enlarge and improve and empower UNIFIL uh, for the same reasons, really. And I would say that's failed, too. So if we've been trying since 2006 to create a situation in which the state has more control of the territory of Lebanon and Hezbollah's power uh, is diminished, we have failed. Mr. Malley? It's clear. 1701, our words on paper, they're not going to be translated uh, on the ground, and they're not going to be translated anytime soon for a clear reason. Israel was not, it would, it wasn't able in 2006 to completely uh, destroy Hezbollah. It's certainly not the Lebanese army. It's not UNIFIL that's going to be able to do it. So we're going to have to live with a situation where we have a resolution that is aspirational. But Lebanon is simply, as I said, I'll conclude with what I started with. It's too weak. It's too vulnerable for us to impose on that country, on that army, to try to do what greater powers have been unable to do. Thank, uh, thanks to both of you. And uh, I think uh, I speak for the committee and, uh, and uh, for the ranking member. Uh, we want to thank you for appearing here today, particularly under the circumstances we have with the weather. But uh, uh, the record will remain open until close of business on Friday for any additional questions that senators may have. Again, thank you for uh, coming here. I think this has been uh, uh, very uh, productive. This uh, committee will be adjourned.